We're in Philippians chapter 2 as we go through Paul's call to humility through the incarnation, the work of Jesus Christ. This morning we're just going to focus on verses 5 through 8, but I'll read 1 through 11 for the sake of context. Philippians 2, 1 through 11 says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. What is your favorite Christmas song? By now, maybe you're sick of all of them, and you've heard them, and you just don't like any Christmas songs. You might be in that camp, or you're not a Christmas song person. Or maybe you kind of like the more pop-oriented Christmas songs, so something like Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You, that might be your favorite Christmas song. Or maybe you're like me, and you like the traditional Christmas hymns. And if you're that kind of person, I encourage you to join us on Friday night, Christmas Eve, because we're going to sing those hymns and hear what other people's favorite songs are and why uh, those songs touch them. So we'll celebrate Christmas hymns on Friday evening as we celebrate the Incarnation. We're going to get a jump start on focusing on Christmas hymns this morning because what we have here in Philippians actually really is a Christmas hymn, particularly in verses 6 through 11. The way it's written is really in the form of a poem. This is kind of a song, and in fact, scholars are not sure whether this section of Philippians, whether these verses originated with Paul, or whether this was a well-known kind of hymn or poem or song that was used at the time that Paul here incorporates into his letter. Uh, Whether Paul wrote it or it was kind of already a standard uh, confession that was used in the church, one thing that is clear reading through it is it has a poetic style to it, and that is particularly clear if you look at it in the the Greek, the language is condensed, there are a lot of verbs missing, it's written poetically, which actually makes it hard to translate, and we'll get through and point out some of those things. But Paul uses this poem to highlight the Incarnation to highlight what we celebrate at Christmas season, that God took on flesh in the Son, Jesus Christ. 
Paul uses this for the purpose of calling the church to humility and to unity. So we covered that last week. How Paul called the whole church, he wanted the church to be united as a church, not going different ways, not arguing with one another, not constantly fighting in intention, but the church to be united. And the way to be united is to be humble, to consider others more important than yourself, to not look to your own interests, but in humility, look to the interests of others. That was last week. That was the reason for Christ-like humility is for a united church. So we know we're called to humble unity. And then the question becomes, how do we do it? Last week we were given Paul's command to make his joy complete by walking in humble unity. This week we're going to focus on how do we get there? Like how do we be humble? We need the power, and the motivation to be humble. And that is why Paul goes to this Christmas hymn of Christ's incarnation. In looking to Christ, we have the power, the example for humility. So we'll ask the question this morning that kind of will drive our whole time together in this text. And the question is, what is the source of Christ-like humility? Last week we asked, what's the reason for Christ-like humility? This week we're asking, what is the source of Christ-like humility? Where does it come from? Where do we see it? What is the source of Christ-like humility? And we'll find that our attention is drawn to the greatest act of humility the world has ever known in Jesus Christ. So we're going to focus on verses 5 through 8 and study Christ's example of humility. First, very briefly, we'll look at verse 5. And here we see the exhortation to Christ's humility. The exhortation to Christ's humility. This year is where Paul calls us to be like Christ. You've heard the old Nike ads, maybe if you remember them, be like Mike. This is much better than that. Be like Christ. And the exhortation to Christ-like humility. Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Very easy and clear. Paul's command, have the mind of Christ. Have his mindset. And he's referring back to the humility he's just talked about, considering others more important yourselves, looking to the interests of others. And he connects that to the humility he's about to show you in what Jesus Christ has done. He's saying, have this mind, this mindset of Christ. It's Paul's desire for the church that they would be a humble church. And that humble, selfless mind is the mind of Jesus, our Lord. The ESV translates this phrase really well, and then later on I'll talk about why I like the ESV translation, which says, which is yours in Christ Jesus. But as I said, this is a poem. It's hard to translate some of these things, so some of your translations might be different. Because in the Greek, it doesn't have verbs in this phrase, really. It says, have this mind among yourselves, then it just says, which in Christ Jesus. That's the Greek. Have this mind among yourselves, which in Christ Jesus. So we have to kind of supply some verbs and flesh it out in order to understand it in English. So the NIV puts it this way. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. The NASB says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And notice what both of those are doing, both those translations. They're saying, have this mind, which Jesus had. 
And it's saying, Jesus is the example, now you do the same. Right? The way those are translated, NIV and NASB, have this mind, the same mindset as Christ Jesus, or have this attitude which was in Christ Jesus. It's making a comparison and saying we should have the same kind of mind because Jesus is our example of humility. So have the same mind that he had or has. And it's, it ought to be obvious to us that Jesus was eminently humble. That is how he lived his life, that is how he ministered. He ministered to the lowly, the outcasts of society. He went to the poor, the unclean. He ministered to women and children who were rejected by others. He ministered to people when he was tired, when he was needing a break and wanting to restore his own soul. People flocked to him and he still ministered to them. And of course, maybe one of the most famous examples of humility, he washed the feet of his own disciples. Something none of them were humble enough to think to do. The Lord did. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. When Jesus was answering questions and receiving criticism and mocking and, and uh, scorn and questions from Pharisees and other religious leaders and people um, trying to trap Jesus and some type of question. Have you ever considered that they were doing that with the mouths he made? Like Scripture teaches us, we said it earlier in John 1.14, that, that Jesus was the creator of the world, that God created all things through him. So he is ministering to his own creation, and his own creation, the very mouths he made, are being used to mock him. And yet, Jesus interacts without sin. So however we define Jesus Christ or look at him, one of the words we must use for Jesus is humility. Which is funny because when we think about the word Messiah, we often use it to uh, label people as arrogant. Oh, you think you're the Messiah? Right? Use that arrogantly. But the Christ, (laughs) he is the definition of humble. That is who he is and who he was. So it follows then, if we're to be Christians... If we're to be little Christs, right, followers of Christ, then we have to be humble. It's not an option. It's not something that we can not think about. We, as followers of Jesus, if we're actually going to follow him, have to walk in humility. So in the way we act and behave, in the way we parent, in the way we work, in the way we teach or coach, in the way we lead teams, in the way we treat our employees, in the way we um, interact with family and friends, the way we treat our spouses in marriage, whatever it is, whatever we're doing as we relate with one another, if we're going to say we follow Jesus, then we have to do so with humility. And if we're only concerned about ourselves, if we're only concerned about uh, what we can get, and if we only look to our own interests, then we are actively rejecting the way of Jesus. To follow him is to be humble. We're called to behave like him. Jesus, the only perfect person who ever lived, the only one with grounds to boast, did not. We live with humility. We're called, as Paul does here, to have his mind. 
And to emphasize that point, Paul then looks to the greatest example of humility, and that is in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul talks about in verses 6 through 7. And Paul explains and shows the embodiment of Christ's humility. That's what I would call the incarnation. It really is the embodiment of Christ's humility. It is humility personified. It is humility in flesh. It is the Son, the eternal Word of God, taking on flesh. The embodiment of Christ's humility, verses 6 through 7. We're going to spend a good amount of time here just unpacking this. Verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So Paul calls us to consider Christ, look to Christ, who did not grasp his equality with God, but emptied himself, taking on the form and likeness of men. And within these short words, these few phrases, there are a ton of debated issues and phrases and words that scholars have argued about. We're not going to be able to dig into all of it, but I want to talk about some of these things that are maybe complicated or argued about. This section, as I said, is written in poetic style, so the words are kind of abbreviated and there leaves room for different interpretations. So let's think about a couple of these complicated or challenging things within this. Uh, First, or things you might have questions about, we might ask why it says that he was in the form of God. Because to our English ears, as we hear Christ was in the form of God, it almost sounds to us like it's just saying he appeared to be God, but wasn't really. Like he kind of had that form, because we associate form just kind of with like outer figure, right? That's not how it was meant or how the Greek is used in that word form, amorphe. It doesn't just mean outward appearance, but a form is something that has characteristics or attributes that show its essential nature or character. So when we're talking about the form of something, we're saying it has these attributes which prove what it essentially is. It has that form. So we're talking about Christ saying he has the form of God. What's saying is he has all the attributes of God proving that he is God. So you can think about it this way. We say something um, barks like a dog, wags his tail like a dog, has fur like a dog, smells like a dog, must be a dog, right? It's got all the attributes of dog, so it's a dog. What he's saying about Christ is, Christ had all the attributes of God, must be God. He had the form, the morphe of God. And he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. He had all the power and the privileges and the authority and the majesty and the beauty and the splendor and the awesomeness of God. And he did not consider that a thing to be grasped. And that brings up our next question. What do we mean by grasp? Right? Because there's a couple of different ways you could understand that. If we think of grasping something, we might think of reaching towards something we don't have. Right? I'm grasping at something. Grasping at straws. And so we often think of grasping at something as reaching out towards something I don't have. And if that were the case here, it would be saying that Christ was grasping at equality with God, but he did not have it. We know that can't be the case 
from the rest of Scripture, it tells us that Christ is God, or from the context here, it doesn't make sense. So there's a different way we have to understand grasp. Grasp can also mean not giving up something or holding on to something so that you can take advantage of it. To cling to, no, this is mine, I'm going to hold on to it. And Paul says here, he did not grasp or hold on to or cling to a quality with God so as to take advantage of it. In fact, he was able to let go of it so as not to hold on to it for his own advantage. So, for example, uh, this is something a good dad will do. Will not grasp on to all the things he has for his own advantage, but will, in fact, give to his children. This is something my dad did, especially as I, I grew up. We had a house of five boys, and five boys get bigger and consume more, particularly in my household, right? And one of the things I saw my dad do a number of times over and over again was not take the most at dinner, but actually give off of his plate to us boys. And when we were in my, our, my teenage years especially, there was no end to what we would consume, right? But very often, he didn't take uh, the biggest piece of steak for himself or the most for himself. He would give to us repeatedly. And that's what a good dad will do. Even though in my house, he was the breadwinner and he was the authority, the head of the home. He had every right and every uh, privilege and authority and he could do what he want with it. He could have held on to the the uh, the nicest, biggest, juiciest cut for himself and give the rest to the kids as the man of the house. But that's not what he did. He gave it up for his kids. Jesus could have held on to all of his glory and splendor and majesty and power and privilege as God, but that's not what he did. He let it go. He willingly Emptied himself, the text says. Which brings up our next controversial phrase. Like, what does that mean? That he emptied himself. The Greek word for that means to, like, render void or to render ineffective or powerless or to deprive. Does that mean that the Son, who was God in the incarnation, gave up his deity? Does it mean that he, like, gave up and emptied himself of all of his divine attributes so he was no longer really God. Is that what that's saying? There are some throughout history who have thought that, particularly actually in the 19th century in the 1800s, there was a school of thought known as canonic theology. The canonics, it comes from the Greek word kanao, to empty. And they taught that in the incarnation, the Son of God actually emptied out his divinity, that he lost uh, not only the appearance of divinity, but he actually lost or gave up or relinquished his divine attributes. So the Son was no longer omniscient, all-powerful, glorious, and, and as majestic, and, and all the attributes that you would put on God, they would say he gave all those up. And basically emptied himself of the attributes of God. This has actually caused, we're going to sing this hymn later, so you can pay attention, 
Charles Wesley, who wrote the hymn, And Can It Be? There's a verse in there where he says, He emptied himself of all but love. Wesley was influenced by canonic theology, and he wrote that verse, and it kind of sounds like he's saying, He emptied himself of all the divine attributes, but only held on to love. Right? So there are a lot of people who will go in and change that verse, because they just don't want to associate themselves with that theology. I think we can still sing that verse just fine. And can it be probably my favorite hymn? Right? Still like it. And it really accords with what Scripture says here. He emptied himself. So the question just is, how do we understand emptying? What does that mean, that he emptied himself? What it means is not that he emptied himself of all of his divine or godly attributes. So he didn't empty himself of divinity. Rather, he emptied his divinity into humanity. The Son did not pour his divinity out such that he lost it. Rather, he poured his divinity into a human form such that his divinity was, by the greatest of miracles, joined with humanity. That is how the Son emptied himself. He emptied himself into humanity. You could compare it to like the Atlantic Ocean being contained in a teacup. All the Atlantic Ocean, all of its glory and power and bigness and awesomeness was contained somehow in a teacup. A larger miracle than that is all of the sun's divinity being found in human form. Another way of explaining his emptying is by noting what Paul says next. I think Paul defines how the son emptied himself. He actually emptied by adding. Look at the text. But emptied himself, how did he empty himself? By taking the form of a servant. He emptied by taking its subtraction by addition. Not by letting go of his deity, but adding on humanity. So it's simple math, actually. The greatest of miracles here is simple math. It's subtraction by addition. It's what happens, or what would happen, if you had a brand new, shiny sports car that cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars, and you drove it through mud. You are not taking anything away from the splendor and the perfection of that car. You're simply adding on dirt. And yet, when you add on that dirt, it looks far less majestic. It's the same thing you do when you put ketchup on steak. Right? A perfectly marbled ribeye, seasoned and grilled, medium rare, and then you throw Heinz on it. Subtraction by addition. Right? Or... It's what would happen if you handed my youngest daughter a beautiful painting and some crayons and stickers. She would add things on. It wouldn't be taking away from the painting itself. The painting's still there, but it's concealed by what has been added to it. That is exactly what has happened in the Incarnation. All of the divinity of God concealed, veiled by taking on humanity. 
as we'll sing in one of my favorite Christmas hymns. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Wonderful line. The Godhead veiled by taking on human form so that people were not able to see his glory. Uh, You may remember the old show, I don't know if it's still going, The Undercover Boss. That is where CEOs or head honchos of companies would go and they'd work at the lowest rungs of the ladder and they'd wear the the laborer's clothes and they'd dress up as one of them and go work and see how things are, right? I don't think in that show they ever stepped down from being CEO. They never relinquished their position. They just added on humility, right? So it's kind of the same thing. The son doesn't give up his deity, but he adds on humanity. The difference is, though, is that when the son becomes human, it's not just a disguise. Like, it's not, he's not just play acting. He's not just for a few moments, I'm going to dress up like a human person, though I'm really actually divine, but it is a really, as he says, taking the form of humanity. Same word, morphe adding on all the essential characteristics of a human, revealing why he really, truly is, in essence, a human. That is how the Son is added on humanity. It's not just dress up. He really became human. This is actually one of the things that the early church really struggled with, was trying to understand how is it that the Son could be human, right? How is that possible, that this God, Jesus, is actually human? So people struggled with, is he God? But they also struggled with, is he human? And many in the early church denied that at first, and the church had to work it out. There was one group called the Docetists. They taught that Jesus only appeared to be human. He was actually kind of a phantasm of sorts. Really God, just kind of appearing in human form. That was the Docetic or the Docetic heresy. There was another group called the Monophysitists. Here's your big word for the day. Monophysitists or Eutychians. They believed that Jesus in his nature, had a combined deity and humanity so that they were kind of mixed together. He wasn't really truly human. His humanity was mixed with deity. He was kind of something else. That's Eutychianism or monophysitism. That his humanity wasn't genuine, full humanity because it was infused with deity. So the church really had a hard time understanding. We were trying to wrap their head around, how can he truly, fully be human? And finally, in the Council of Chalcedon, 451 AD, the church got together and worked through these things, and they came up with a Chalcedonian statement on Christ and who he was. And there's just one part, I'll read very quickly, that we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man. And it goes on from there to explain more about that. But that's the important part for us. He is truly God, truly man, complete in both. And in fact, I would argue that Jesus is the most human who ever lived. The most human, human. That his humanity was not corrupted in any way, but ours is. He is the only one who lived with perfected humanity. Completely human. But we, in sin, have our humanity taken away, corrupted. This is what happens through the fall, through our sin, through brokenness. 
When we stray from God or separated from him, we become less human, less how we were originally designed to be. As we'll see next week, Jesus can lead us into becoming fully human again. I love how Peter Lewis uh, describes this incarnation in his book, The Glory of Christ. He says, Our Lord did not and could not abandon the form of God, but hid the form of God under the form of a servant, veiling his glory beneath a humble creaturely life. He did not exchange one mode of being for another, but on earth hid one mode of being in another. He did not cease to be what he had always been, but became what he had never been. God, in a great act of self-humbling, became a man, but he did not cease to be God. That is the miracle of the Incarnation. He did not cease to be God, but he became a man. He did not lose his divinity. He added genuine humanity. And not only just any kind of humanity, he added on being a servant. In one sense, and hear me rightly when I say this, but in one sense, it would not matter how Jesus became a human in that it would not matter what kind of human he became, whether a lowly poor one or if Jesus was a rich, wealthy, powerful, privileged, well-reputed person. In either case, or in any case, the fact of God becoming human is the most humble thing that has ever happened. Even if he came with all human power and authority. The distance from creator to creation is greater than any distance you can travel within the ranks of humanity, any caste or class. It would still be the most humble thing that's ever happened. And yet, he still chose to come as a lowly servant, without home, without a place to rest his head, mocked and criticized. Jesus was a lowly man who lived as a servant. William Taylor says it beautifully. He says, as we see God in Jesus we see that God is prepared to take every advantage, every privilege, and every possession, and to use all that he has as an opportunity for unreserved self-sacrifice on behalf of his people. What would you do if all power and authority were given to you? How would you use it? We play that game with ourselves. Maybe you don't, but I have at times. What if I won the lottery? I've never played the lottery. What if I won it? What do you say to yourself? If you're like me, you say something along the lines of, I would give so much of it away. Not all. I would make sure that I'm taken care of. You know, I'd just leave the 2 or 10% for me. Make sure I'm still a wealthy and powerful person, but I'd give the rest away because of my great humility. Right? You do that. The son gave it all. 
with all authority, all power, all privilege, he went to the lowest point possible. That's how he used his privilege or his authority. And it ought to shape, if we're Christians, how we use our power, our privilege, our authority. Husbands and dads, like it or not, no matter what our culture says, the husband is the head of the wife. Meaning, you have a certain authority and responsibility. The question is, how will you use it? If you're a mom, you have kids, you have authority and power. How will you use it? If you have employees at work, if you have rank in your position, you have power and authority, how will you use it? If you're a coach, if you're a teacher, you have a given power and authority in your context. And the question is, how will you use it? All of us, in some sphere, have some type of power and authority given to us by virtue of being people. How will you use it? Our world has a problem with authority. We don't like using that word. Even many Christians now want to jettison that concept altogether, which I think is unbiblical. And they do so because they've seen authority abused. Because that's what happens when you give sinful people authority. We've seen that through world history. What happens when you give people all power and privilege? They tend to hurt other people. So our temptation will be to reject the concept altogether, reject authority altogether, reject power and privilege altogether. But the problem is it still remains, and people still have it. So the question becomes, what will you do with it? If we are like Christ, we will use our authority, our power, privilege to humble ourselves and serve those beneath us. To sacrifice ourselves for the good of the other. That is what Christian authority looks like. It looks like service and sacrifice and laying your life down for the good of the other person because that is exactly what Jesus has done, the Son has done with all of his power and authority. That's what Paul talks about in verse 8. The extent of Christ's humility. We've gone over the exhortation to Christ's humility, the embodiment of Christ's humility. He embodied humility in the incarnation. And now in verse 8, we look at the extent of his humility. How far did his humility go? Verse 8. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here is what Jesus did with his humanity. With his deity and all of his humility, he used it to be obedient to the point of death. It is, actually I would say, the whole point of the son's humanity. 
This is why word took on flesh. This is why the eternal son became a human. The whole point was to suffer and die. Because it's the only thing he could do as a human that he couldn't do as God. The only thing he could not do as God alone was die. He could minister in every other way. But God could not sacrifice himself, could not die for his people. So the point of the incarnation, the reason for Christmas, you could say, what is the reason for the season? The reason for the season is sacrificial death. That is the point of the incarnation, so that Jesus could come and minister among us and live among us and know our temptations and know our weaknesses and know our frailty and have all those things in himself. So he became tired, he became fatigued, he became hungry, he thirsted, and he eventually suffered and died. They could only do that as a human. It was the point of the incarnation. So he was incarnated to die. And that's how far he'd go. That's how far his obedience would go. We know Jesus as an obedient person. Again, it's not one of those words that our culture hates. We're afraid to teach it to our kids even because we've been um, impacted by our culture instead of looking at Scripture and what Jesus is like. We love the word obedience in our home for parents and kids because that's what Jesus is. He's obedient. He's obedient to his Father. John fourteen thirty one. but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. How's the world going to know that I love the Father? I obey him. I do what he says. He is obedient. He's like, how obedient? To the death. He humbled himself to the cross, proving there's nothing beneath him. This last week, there was a video going around. Some of you saw it, maybe, if you pay attention to sports. There was a video of a college basketball player, and they were, I don't know the context of the game or whatever, but they were leaving the court and going into the locker room, and I think a couple of players or even the coach was frustrated. Somebody knocked over a trash can on their way into the locker room, and one of the other guys on the team stayed behind and was picking up all the trash, putting it back. Another teammate. And everybody looked at that and said, that's a guy of character. And it is. That's the character of Christ, being willing to stoop low and do what isn't your responsibility, but to pick up the trash because you're not above it. Do you know what the lowest point on earth is? A little trivia for you off the top of your head. How about the lowest point in Kansas? From what I read, you can fact check me, lowest point in Kansas is the Vertigus River in Montgomery. Sits at 679 feet above sea level. That part surprised me. Lowest point in Kansas sits 679 feet above sea level. How about the lowest point on earth? The Dead Sea. Lowest point on earth is the Dead Sea, which sits at 1,410 feet below sea level. Geologically speaking, that's the lowest point on earth. The actual lowest point on earth was just a few miles away on Calvary on a hill where Christ was raised. That is the lowest point that has ever been seen. Where God himself, who took on the form of a human, was raised in shame. 
We know this. If you've been in church for a long time, you've been a Christian for a long time, you know and you've looked at the humiliation of the cross. The cross was something that was reserved only for non-citizens. Like if a Roman citizen was condemned to death, they would give them a nice, dignified beheading. Quick, easy, not a spectacle. The, a Roman citizen could not be crucified. It was against the law. They reserved that only for slaves, for the aliens, for the strangers, non-citizens. That's because the cross was intentionally shameful. It is the only reason you kill somebody in that fashion. The only reason you raise somebody on the cross is to make a show of them for public display, for public embarrassing and humbling. That's the point of the cross. It is for the purpose of shaming, and it is that death which our sovereign God chose. That is not by accident that Christ came when he did. It was incarnate when he was at that time with a possibility of being crucified for all the world to see. It is a visible show. This is the humility of God orchestrated sovereignly before time so that you may know that this is what God is like. He is humble to the point of death, dying for his people. And if the incarnation of Christ and his sacrifice on the cross does not make us humble, then nothing will. Carl Henry is one of the most well-known theologians of the 20th century. He was the first editor of Christianity Today. And he actually was known by many, I guess, for having kind of a humble countenance about him. And somebody asked him, as great as, and as accomplished as you are as a theologian and how well-read and, and what kind of thinker you are, how is it that you remain humble? And Carl Henry said, how can anyone be arrogant when he stands beside the cross? If we see the cross for what it is, there will be no room for arrogance, no room for looking down on others, no room for thinking we deserve something more. If we look at the cross and what our Lord endured for us, there is no room for arrogance. John Stott said of the cross that every time we look at the cross, Christ seems to be saying to us, I am here because of you. It is your sin I am bearing, your curse I am suffering, your debt I am paying, your death I am dying. Nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, until we have visited a place called Calvary. It is there at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our true size. There's never been a greater example of humility. And I want to close with this thought, because this is important. It wasn't just an example. It is crucial that we know this, that the cross of Christ and his incarnation is the greatest example of humility we have ever seen, but it was not just an example. Jesus didn't just do it for show. He accomplished something on the cross. The cross was effective. He did something. He actually saved people. 
On the cross, he actually took our sins. On the cross, he actually washed us clean. On the cross, he actually secured forgiveness for us. On the cross, he actually reconciled us to God and turned his just judgment on wrath away from us and gave us God's favor. On the cross, Jesus secured peace. He did these things. He accomplished them on the cross. So never let anybody tell you that the cross was only an example. It was much more than that. He actually accomplished salvation for us on the cross. The cross is effective. And here's why that's key. If we are in Christ, we not only have an example of humility, we have the power for humility. Because an example cannot save you. And an example cannot make you humble. If he's just an example, something to look to, that would only be discouragement and depressing. Why? Because an example gives us no ability to actually do the same thing. So, uh, should they happen, COVID-dependent, we'll have the Olympics in a couple months. And at some point, I'll probably sit down with my kids and watch figure skating. And I will see the greatest example of figure skating I could possibly see. It'll be, for all intents and purposes, a perfect display of figure skating. And you know what that doesn't enable me to do? It does not give me the power to figure skate. In the same way, just looking at Christ alone does not give you the power to be humble. You need him. It's why we have a union with Christ, not just an example of godliness, but the power for godliness, that when we are united with him, we actually have his humility and have his mind for ourselves, which is why, as I said earlier, I love the way the ESV translates verse 5. Look at it again. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Not just a distant example to look to, but a mindset given to you, which belongs to you, which you actually have by the virtue of Christ's work and the Spirit poured out and dwelled in you. And when you became a Christian, God did not leave you without hope or ability, but gave you his Spirit and united you to him. You have the mind of Christ. So you can be humble as he is. It's why he is not just the example, as important and as pivotal as that is, it's not just the example, but the source of our humility. You might say, all right, well, why be humble? Why be like Christ? And I would say, come back next week, day after Christmas, after you've recovered from all the festivities, and we'll look at what's the fruit of Christ-like humility. Where does this lead? Where does this take us? Would you pray with me? Our Father and God, what a joy it is to look at uh, powerful words. Uh, I don't know what we'd do without this. How discouraging life would be. without a God who stoops low for us, 
makes us like you. We'd be left all alone. Lord, we thank you that we're not left all alone, that we're not left to just figure this out on our own and try and do things all for ourselves, Lord, but we have given an example of humility and a power for humility in your Son, that he has become like us, that we might become like you. We'll never fully comprehend this miracle, Lord, but we pray that we would continue to um, grow in it, to uh, grasp it, to hold on to it, to make Christ's humility our own, and to look to the interests of one another and each other more than our own. Give us grace for it, Lord. We need it. And we pray. Amen.